ask them if you got them. And I'll tell you if I'm covering it already, but I may not be. Any questions? Yes. Susan's here. That's my fifth person. Yes. <laughs> Why did Paul not see any other apostles by Peter and James? And I will, um, I will hopefully have time. To, I, I intend to cover that today. If I don't, let's cover it at the end. Yes, absolutely. Did Paul have a family? That's a really good question. And the answer to that is we really don't know. Here's what we know. Uh, he was a Pharisee. In order to be a Pharisee, you had to be married. So he was likely married at some point in time. Did his wife die? Did his wife leave him? Was he, because he just really doesn't, and we know he wasn't married. He says, I wish everybody would be as I am, single. Uh, but, you know, if you're going to burn with lust, go ahead and get married. I mean, that's kind of the Amy Keezer version of that verse. <laughs> it's not exactly, Linda Stewart. Uh, but uh, so I would say and, uh, that we don't know for sure, but he was probably married and he was probably disowned by his family. Uh, and then his wife either died or because he just doesn't mention family. His wife either died or left him because, woo, he was following Jesus. He was crazy. Any other? Oh, okay, another question? No, okay. Any other questions? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It, uh, Titus was not who would have compelled him, is that the question? Uh, and I will cover that, basically, but it, the other apostles would have said, no, buddy, you got to be circumcised. It wasn't that their argument was so strong that Titus went, oh, yeah, you're right, I should be circumcised. It was they said, you don't have to be circumcised. Okay. Any other questions? Yes, Diane. Yeah, the mother church. Yeah, I'm sorry. I shouldn't have used that language. That would be the church at Jerusalem, the original church, the church that was headed by Peter, James, and John. Um, and the James switched in there. Originally, Peter, James, and John, the disciples, and then the James became James, James the disciple. John's brother was martyred, and um, James, the half-brother of Jesus, became one of the leaders of, of the of the church in Jerusalem, which was an impoverished church, and we know that from history as well. Uh, and it would be tough to be a Christian church in Jerusalem in the first century. I mean, that would just be a tough place to be a Christian church. So, uh, yeah, that was the mother church. Any other questions? Well, let's pray, and then we'll, we'll dive in. Father God, thank you so much for every woman here today. Thank you so much for your truth. Uh, Father, I pray that the words that I speak would be your words, that they would be pleasing to you, Father. And uh, just pray that we would all um, be open to your word, open to your gospel, and desirous of learning from you today. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, just to give you a quick review, especially if anyone was not able to be here last week, and this is absolutely the shortest Reader's Digest version of the background of Galatians as you can give, the letter to the Galatians was written by Paul. It was written to the churches in Galatia, it, which was not a church. It was a group of churches in southern Galatia. Galatia was a region in what is now known as Turkey, what was then known as Asia Minor. And the churches that Paul had visited, and so therefore were likely the churches that, uh, that this, these, this letter was to, were Derb, Iconium, Lystra, and then Antioch. There were two Antiochs, so that one is Antioch in Pisidia, or is referred to as Pisidian Antioch. There's another Antioch you can see that was in Syria. Um, but that is likely, those were likely the recipients of this letter to the Galatians. It was written because a group of men known as Judaizers, is what, what we've come to call them, had infiltrated the church and begun to teach a false gospel. They had begun to teach that, yeah, you have to have faith in Christ to be saved, but you also have to keep the Jewish law, that you are not saved unless you have faith in Christ and do these other things. So they were trying to change the gospel of grace and to essentially 
a gospel of works. Now, of course, we're going to get into this in much more detail today because Paul jumps right into it in Galatians. Um, but the two themes, based on the criticisms of the Judaizer, Judaizers, which were A, Paul didn't have the authority to teach the gospel because he was not a true apostle, and B, even so, his, apostle, his, his gospel wasn't the right gospel. Based on those two criticisms of Paul, uh, by the Judaizers, the two primary themes of the letter to the Galatians were, first of all, Paul, he begins with Paul's defense of his authority as, as, an, as an apostle. So he is going to defend himself and say, I really am an apostle. That's going to take up most of the first two chapters, actually, of the letter. Uh, and then secondly, Paul's defense of the gospel he preached that he was preaching the true gospel. And that is, that gospel is that salvation comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's it. That's the gospel. Salvation comes by grace, through faith in Christ. So here's the opening, the first five verses of the... Oh, there's nothing right there. I wonder what that was supposed to be. Oh, interesting. That's the end. Interesting. That's, no, we didn't want to do that. And there's nobody back there. Hello! <laughs> there's nobody back there to help me. Oh. Go in. Do what you're supposed to do. Anybody dance? Interpretive dance, anyone? Galatians 6. Okay, this is it. This is good enough. No, that's not it. I am astonished. One through five. What in heaven's name? One, one, three, one, one. Okay. This is just not right. How did this happen? Yes, we can and we will. Uh, I have a Bible too, which is a good thing. And that's why I bring it for this very purpose is if we end up with no way of getting it up there. Okay, Galatians 1, verses 1 through 5. This is also why I bring my reading glasses. Go eat. There we go. Which say this, Paul, an apostle, sent not from men nor by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers with me, to the churches in Galatia, Grace and peace to you from, uh, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age according to the will of, God, uh, of our God and Father to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Now the tone of this opening is very different. Uh, and in fact the first ten verses of the opening is very different from Paul's other openings to his other uh, churches that he wrote. It is very short. It's much shorter than the others. It's to the point. Uh, and from the first verse on, Paul is in defense mode. He is defending his apostleship and the gospel of Christ from verse 1. In fact, Philip Ryken says of these verses that the letter opens more with argumentation than with salutation. And and Dr. Terry Johnson says, I love this, that, that he is so eager to defend the gospel that he's arguing, arguing on the envelope. I mean, he just is, he's ready. He's ready to fight. Um, and now the first thing I need to tell you is this word is, that's not up there, this word apostle, that he calls himself an apostle. The word apostle was a very common Greek word. Uh, and there are two different kinds of apostle. There's apostle with a capital A, and there's an apostle with a small a. Literally in the Greek, the word apostle means anyone sent on a mission, anyone sent as an emissary to accomplish something. But apostle with a capital A refers to a specific group of men who were commissioned by Jesus to carry the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ to the world. So anyone sent on a mission could be called an apostle, but there are only a few men that we can say we're, we're apostles. There are no longer, in a sense, we are all apostles. We are all called to spread the good news, small a. But there are no longer any apostles, capital A. John was the last one. When he died, 
that was the end of those who were commissioned by Jesus Christ personally to carry the good news of the gospel. Paul is not saying, I am an apostle, I have been sent by God, small a. He's saying, I am a capital A, okay, I am a capital A apostle uh, commissioned by Jesus Christ, commissioned by God himself um, in this verse. And so, he, so then he's defending his authority as a capital A apostle, as a true apostle. Because, he, see, here's what one of the critics was, uh, the, the argument of the critics of Paul. It was, he's not one of the 12. He's not one of the original disciples. Um, so he's, he wasn't part of Jesus' earthly ministry. He didn't walk with Christ. He didn't learn from Christ when Jesus was alive on earth. So he can't be a true apostle. Uh, and, and not only that, since he can't be a true apostle, then we can say there's something wrong with his gospel as well. Because his gospel is hearsay. He got his, the, his gospel message from someone else, not from Jesus himself. Peter, James, John, those guys got the message from Jesus himself. His is hearsay. Uh, and so from, from this very first verse, Paul is going to let them know that is not right, that both his authority as an apostle and his gospel were given to him by God. Uh, and in fact, his, it, why do I keep looking up there? From the very first verse, he is telling them that he is an apostle. And it's even more terse in the Greek. The first three words in the Greek are Paul, apostle, not, from God. So from the very first verse, he's saying, this is my credential. I am Paul, I am an apostle. Not because of men, but because of God. Now, Paul's point here, I mean, make no mistake about it, he's upset. He sounds upset. He's going to sound more upset as the letter goes along. Uh, he is upset. But his point isn't, do you know who I am? That's not what he's saying. He's not saying, hello, I am the Apostle Paul. Uh, and you ought to recognize that. He's, he's, everything about what he's saying about his authority is pointing back to the gospel. Because if his authority can be questioned, then his gospel can be questioned. So he's not saying, do you know who I am? He's saying, do you know the gospel that I have the authority to preach? This is the true gospel. And the reason he's upset is because the gospel is at stake. People's eternity is at stake. And frankly, that should make any Christian upset when people who belong to the church begin to uh, make the gospel something other than it is, that should upset us. And it upset Paul very much. So looking at verse 1, it says, Paul, an apostle, sent not from men nor by man, uh, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. So Paul is saying, look, my commissioning neither originated from nor is mediated by human beings. God made me an apostle. Jesus Christ made me an apostle. His authority is not human. It is divine. And he was sent by Jesus Christ and God who raised him from the dead. Now, he's going to pick this whole theme back up again. This is just his opening greeting. But he's saying, because I was commissioned by Jesus Christ and God who raised him from the dead, that means my message is God's message. They are one and the same. And then in verses 3 to 5, he starts at the very beginning and he gives us the gospel in a nutshell, the gospel in three verses. He says, Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. So there are four things we learn about the gospel or about the cross of Christ from these verses. The first thing we learn about the cross of Christ uh, is that nobody took Jesus' life. Jesus gave his life willingly. It says, uh, grace and peace to you from God our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins. He gave it. Jesus himself said this. Jesus said in John 10, verses 17 and 18, nobody takes my life. I lay it down. I willingly lay it down. I'm doing this 
intentionally. Nobody takes it from me. So that's the first thing we learn about the gospel in these three verses. The second thing we learn is the purpose of the cross. Why did Jesus give his life? For our sins. So the purpose of the cross was that Jesus died for our sins. We were the ones that deserved that death, but Jesus took our place willingly, dying for our sins on the cross. Now, you've heard that before, haven't you? We've become pretty familiar with that phraseology. My prayer is that we never become so familiar with it that we lose the wonder and the awe that the God of the universe loved us so much that he took on human flesh and gave himself willingly and, and went through a wretched death for wretches like us. That is an amazing truth, and that tells us about the character and the love of our God and of his son. So may we, and Paul never became so familiar with it, that, that he just said it offhand. Jesus died for our sins willingly on that cross. The third thing we learn about the cross from these three verses is the effect of the cross. And the effect of the cross was that we were rescued. We were rescued from our sins on that cross. The cross is not a self-help tool. It's not something to take good people and make them a little better or okay people and, and make them better. The cross was a rescue mission. We had to be saved. By its very nature, a rescue is not something that you can do yourself. If you need to be rescued, if you're in a burning building and you need someone to carry you out, you can't say, hey, I willingly got on his shoulders. No, you were rescued. And that is what Paul is saying, that we were rescued. That is the effect of the cross um, on, our, on our lives. It's not something that we could accomplish on our own. We have been rescued, and then it says we have been rescued from this present evil age. Well, what does that mean? Well, I'll give you the theologian's answers to that. What is the present evil age? Uh, one theologian calls it the course and current of the world's affairs corrupted by sin. Another calls this present age the totality of human life dominated by sin and opposed to God. This is, this is my version because I don't have a PhD. I would say that by the cross of Christ, we have been rescued from the godlessness and sinfulness that characterizes a world that does not worship the one true God. That we have been pulled out of that world of sin, out of that culture of death, and we have been placed into a new one uh, that worships God. So we have already been freed from the penalty of sin, but obviously the effect of sin continues on. What the Bible tells us is that one day we will be freed from every curse of sin uh, that is upon this earth. And then finally, the fourth thing we learn is the origin of the cross. The cross, the, the origin of the cross comes from the will of God. The cross was not some unforeseen, unforeseen tragedy. It was according to the will of God the Father. The cross was never God's plan B. It's not like when Adam and Eve sinned, God was up in the heaven going, oh, oops, they sinned. Now what do I do? That's not what happened. The cross was always God's plan. Now I'm going to really hope that this thing's going to go. Doggone it, this is going to make it much harder for me to do. Okay. When Julie comes back, she'll fix that for me. Um, Philip Ryken says this. This is my daughter. She likes to write things. She writes me notes all throughout all my books. I've got, everybody loves you. Smiley face. <laughs> is it any wonder I love that girl? This is what Philip Ryken says about the cross. It says, the cross had been on God's mind from all eternity. Thus, it demonstrates the love of God as well as the love of Christ. There could be no conflict within the Trinity as if a loving son had to rescue us from an angry father. On the contrary, the willingness of the son was in response to the father's will, in response to the father's love for us. The father does not love us because the son died for us. Rather, the son died for us because the father loves us. The cross had its origin in the father's heart. Jesus gave his life willingly in response to God's love for us not in response to God's anger for us. All of which causes Paul to overflow with praise to this God who would love us that much. In verse 5, he says, 
to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Please notice in these first five verses that there is nowhere where it says that there's something we must do to earn our salvation. I think the problem is, I just read that. I think the, I think the first five verses were just blank. I think the rest of it's okay. So just, you can leave it there. And now if it'll work for me up here, we'll be fine. Okay? And I can just use that. From, but I, I think that somehow the first five verses that were up there first just got uh, obliterated. I'm not sure what happened, but it doesn't matter. Thank you very much for rescuing me from that <laughs> death. <laughs> so it, um, so uh, it over, he overflows, it's doxology, which means praise. He overflows with this praise because of everything that God has done. And nowhere in these five verses does it say, and you must be circumcised, or and you must be baptized, or and you must be... There's nothing that we can do. There's, there's nothing that we need do because in truth there's nothing we can do to save ourselves. Uh, rather, it tells us what Jesus has done on our behalf how Jesus has achieved that salvation for us. And that's because the gospel is Christ is not about what we do for God. It is about what God has already done for us through his son, Jesus Christ. Therefore, who should receive the glory for that? God. And only God should receive the glory for that. Amen? That's the first five verses, and you thought the first opening of a, of a letter was just fluff that you get by to get to the good stuff, didn't you? But it is the good stuff, uh, and there's a lot of good things in there. So let's move on to verses 6 through 10, where Paul uh, <laughs> starts right off. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let him be eternally condemned. Okay, why is this not doing it? There we go. Oh, thank you. You have nothing better to do, right? As we have already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let him be eternally condemned. Am I now trying to win the approval of men or of God? Or am, I trying, or am I trying to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ. Okay, I'll leave it there for a second. So again, different tone than in his other openings to his other letters. His other letters open with prayers for the people he's sending it to. And Thanksgiving, I thank God every time I remember you in my prayers. And here he's like, I'm astonished. I can't believe you're doing this. Here, this is what he's saying. He's saying, I'm Paul. I'm an apostle sent by God, and y'all are messed up. That's the basic opening that he's giving here. He is not just concerned. He is shocked, and he is stunned by what he sees happening, what he has heard is happening at the, in the Galatian churches, all of which shows us how seriously Paul took these matters. He isn't just saying, hey, you know, you probably need to stop that. You know what I tell my kids all the time when I want them to obey? And I've been a mother for 22 years and I still do this. Hey, why don't you go put on your shoes? No! What do you think is it? Why don't you go put on my shoes? I don't think I want to do that. Instead of saying, go put on your shoes. Now, I don't have to say it meanly. But if I say, why don't you? That's not what Paul is doing is here. here. He's not saying, why don't you all stop listening to the Jews? He's saying, you better stop. This is important. Uh, and this is, this is a gospel that is no gospel at all. You know what I find really interesting is that even the Corinthian church got love from Paul, and the Corinthian church was committing incest. They were turning the Lord's Supper into drunken parties and all kinds of other stuff. And even they got some thanksgiving from Paul, but not this church. No, he's taking it very uh, seriously. And then he says, evidently some people are throwing you into confusion and trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But, or, excuse me, I should go up. Uh, you, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who's called you by the grace uh, of Christ and turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. In the Greek, there are two words for different. The first word is hetero, which you're all going, oh, yeah. Uh, so the first word is hetero, and the second word is allo, and they have two different meanings. Hetero means completely different, totally different from another thing. It's, a, it's of a completely different kind. Allo means different of the same kind. 
So my dog right now is at the groomer. He's a Shih Tzu Poodle mix. He is a dog. Uh, Elissa's dog, Elissa's puppy, is a different kind of dog, but he is still a dog. He is a beautiful, gorgeous, wonderful, but he likes to bite, golden, not golden, yellow lab puppy. That's aloe. He is different, he is of a different kind, but he's, also, he's still a dog. Paul doesn't use that word. It's, it's different of the same kind. It's, it's also a gospel, it's just different. He uses hetero. So he's saying the gospel they are preaching is completely other. It's totally different. It's, it's so different from the true gospel that it's not a gospel. It is no gospel at all. So evidently some people are throwing you, some people that are throwing them into confusion, those are the Judaizers. The Judaizers have come into Galatia, uh, and so who were they? They were Jewish Christians, which I even hesitate to say, because if they're preaching a different gospel that is no gospel at all, are they Christians? So, but, the, but that's, they, they, they professed Christ. They were people who professed Christ that were from a Jewish background, and they believed in a lot of the same things that Paul believed. If Paul said that Jesus was God's son, the Judaizers would say, yes, he is. If Paul said he was divine, he was the Messiah, he rose from the dead, he was born of a virgin, all those things, the Judaizers would have all said yes to all of that. So there were a number of things on which they agreed, but the Judaizers were adding works of the law to faith in Christ uh, as, a, as necessary for salvation. Now, I, I just need to tell you this. If a Jewish Christian wants to follow the Jewish law for traditional reasons, if they say, look, this is how I worship God, is by there's nothing wrong with that. that. They weren't bad things. The problem becomes when they say, that must be done in order to earn salvation. Does that make sense? Okay. So there was a lot on which they agreed, but where they parted ways, importantly, was to say, you must also keep the Jewish law. And that was causing the Galatians to abandon the faith. In fact, Paul says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting. That's a strong word. That word for desertion was a military word for a traitor. Someone who turned tail and ran in the battle. It came to be known as someone who went from one philosophy or one religion and converted to another. So Paul's using a strong word here, that they are deserting the faith of God. Um, and, and there's three things about this word. The first is that he use it, uses it in the present tense. So Paul, in essence, has caught them in the, it's, it's just, it's still happening. And he's, in a sense, caught them in the act of deserting. You are quickly deserting. Um, the second thing is uh, what I just told you about. It was used for military traders. But the third thing is that this is the same word that was used in the desert for the Israelites when Moses went up on the mountain to get the Ten Commandments and they deserted God by, uh, by uh, building and worshiping a golden calf. So they were quickly, and it says they quickly deserted. But God says to Moses, you need to get down there because your people <laughs> have quickly deserted me. And I think Paul did that intentionally. I think he used that same language. Now, I should tell you that that was written in Hebrew and Paul's writing in Greek, but in the Greek version of the Old Testament, it uses the exact same wording, and that's what these people would have known of the Old Testament, was the Greek version. So I think Paul did that intentionally. I think he's saying, look, you're doing just what the Israelites did, and calamity fell on them, and it's going to fall on you if you don't stop what you are doing. It's also interesting to see who are they deserting. It says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by his grace. They're not just deserting the gospel. They're deserting God. They are deserting God. And in truth, to desert the gospel is to desert God. If there is only one true gospel, then you're not just deserting God. Uh, this is how Terry Johnson puts it. He says, to turn away from the gospel of grace is to turn away from the God of grace. Uh, and that's what Paul is telling them. And then he says, you, you have gone to another gospel. You have deserted the gospel to go to another gospel. And he repeats himself. He says, even if I or an angel or anybody would preach another gospel, let him be eternally condemned. And then he says it again, essentially the same thing again. Why? Why does he repeat himself in this? Well, it's not just hyperbole. He's not just, you know, trying to... to 
make a bold statement. And I think he repeats himself to say, I mean this. I'm not just making some crazy off-the-wall statement. I mean what I'm saying, and so I'm going to tell you again. But there is a subtle difference between the two verses. In verse... Um, uh, in ver- oh, okay. In verse 8, he says, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel, that is a, sub- a subjunctive. That's if this theoretically, if this hypothetically happened, doesn't matter who it is, if it happened, then uh, that person should be eternally condemned. But then, in the second one, he says, and in fact, it's happening. And so, because it's happening in Galatia, he states it even more strongly in verse 9. As I have, we have already said to you, so I now say again, if anybody is preaching, as the Judaizers currently are, a gospel other than what you accepted, let him be eternally condemned. This is strong stuff. Because essentially what Paul is saying here is um, that if anyone preaches a gospel other than Christ, anyone who perverts the gospel of Christ deserves to go to hell. Wow, that's a strong statement. Galatians is not for the faint of heart. And to our modern ears, that sounds intolerant. Whoa, what do you mean? I mean, they believed in Jesus. They believed that he rose from the dead. And Paul is saying, if you pervert the gospel of Christ, you should be condemned. You deserve to be condemned. Um, But the truth is, that if the Bible, if what the Bible says is true, then the most intolerant thing we could do, the most unjust thing we could do, the most hateful thing we could possibly do is not confront people who pervert it and are leading people to hell. Amen? That's truly the intolerant thing, is to say, you know, it really doesn't matter, and not say, no, that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches something else. And if it's true, then we need to defend that. We need to say, look, it's state. It's, 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 it's true and it's real because eternity is at stake. And that requires a strong response. It required a strong response from Paul and it requires a strong response from us. In verse 10, he says, am I still trying to please men or am I trying to please God? Another criticism that was apparently leveled at Paul, and we see this elsewhere in his letters, is that he was just trying to, make, he was trying to water down the gospel. He was trying to make it easier on the Gentiles. You know, you don't have to follow all that law stuff. No, 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 just have faith. Come, just have faith. That's all you need. And so he was trying to water down the gospel uh, for the Gentiles. And he's saying, look, I'm not trying to please men. All, the only person I'm trying to please is God. He denounces that criticism uh, very strongly as well. He lived only to please God. I sure wish I could say that about my life. So then we move on to verses 11 and 12, and and in 11 through 24, Paul gives some history about his life and about his faith. He begins in verses 11 and 12, it says, I want you to know, brothers, that the gospel I preach is not something that man made up. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Christ. So they're saying, you're not a true apostle, your gospel is hearsay. And so he's going to begin to defend that in these verses. And he says, look, no human taught me the gospel. Jesus himself revealed it to me. This is likely a reference to his conversion experience. If you don't know that story, go to Acts and read it because it's, that's really important background. But the, the short version of it, he was on his way to Damascus to arrest Christians when Jesus Christ blinded him and said, Paul, Paul, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, I don't even know you. Who are you? He said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. You are persecuting my church. That means you're persecuting me. And Paul was changed instantly. See, Paul knew about Jesus, obviously. He was arresting Christians. So he knew what the Christians were saying about Jesus, but he thought it was blasphemy. But I'm telling you right now, getting struck down by Jesus on a road to Damascus is going to change your life. And it changed Paul's life. And in that instant, Paul knew it was all true. He really is risen. How else would he appear to me on the road to Damascus if it wasn't true? It was revealed to him in an instant. And Paul was blinded physically for a time because of that experience. But spiritually, his eyes had never been more open. For the first time, he saw the truth 
about Jesus, and it changed his life. So Paul is going to say the first proof that my gospel comes from God, not from man, my gospel is divinely God's message, is my changed life. So in verses 13 and 14, he says, For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many, of the, my own, many Jews my own age and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. So he's saying the first proof that this didn't come from man, but it came from God, is I was a Pharisee of Pharisees. I was not a believer when I headed out on that road to Damascus. And I got to tell you that this gospel that he's preaching is not the kind of gospel that a Pharisee would make up. You don't have to keep the Jewish law. No, that is not the kind of, Pharisee, kind of gospel a Pharisee would make up. He went in an instant from being the church's worst enemy to being the greatest evangelist that ever lived. There is only one way that could happen, and that's by a revelation from Jesus Christ about the truth. Something happened on that road to Damascus, and that is proof, Paul's changed life is proof that not only did his gospel come from God, but it is proof that the gospel is true. May that be, be able to be said of our lives that our lives are proof of the truth of the gospel. In verses 15 through 17, he gives proof number two, that, that he did not consult anyone when he came. Whoa, this is just getting weirder and weirder, isn't it? Okay, but when God, who set me apart from birth and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not consult any man, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was. But I went immediately into Arabia and later returned to Damascus. So Paul's saying, look, I didn't get this gospel from any of the, the other apostles. I didn't even go to Jerusalem for three years. I went immediately into Arabia, and there should be a map on the next page, which was in your study. Um, okay, there it is. So Arabia, and there's some disagreement on this, but what makes the most sense is that Arabia is, right, is part of Damascus. And he went out into Arabia, into uh, the desert essentially to be alone. Why, what did he do? I think Paul sequestered himself with his Old Testament scriptures and, and for the first time in his life, saw how they all, everything pointed to Jesus. Genesis, Jesus, Exodus, Jesus, Leviticus, Jesus, Numbers, all the way through. The, the Old Testament is a neon sign saying, Jesus is the Messiah. And Paul saw that through his study of scripture. We can't know that for sure because Paul doesn't tell us, but that's what makes sense. Proof number three in verses 18 through 24 is that when he did go to Jerusalem, he only met briefly with the apostles and then only two of them. So then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem, three years after his conversion, to get acquainted with Peter and stayed with him 15 days. I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. I assure you before God that what I am saying, what I am writing you is no lie. Later I went to Syria and Cilicia, I was personally unknown to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only heard the report. The man who formerly persecuted us, persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they praised God because of me. So he did go to Jerusalem three years afterward. He met only with Peter, or your version of the Bible may say Cephas, that's the same person, and James, James, Jesus' half-brother. Why? In order to get a report. The word there is hysterese which means to give a history or to give a report in order to learn about them and so they could learn about him. It wasn't to get the gospel. It wasn't to be taught theology. It was so they could meet and greet one another, get to know each other. Um, now, why did he only meet with James and Peter? Well, first of all, I think the others were afraid of him. You meet with him. I'm not going to meet with him. He arrested Christians. So I think that they were afraid of him. But I think it was also not part of the purpose of the trip. That's not why he went there. Um, and so I think he, Paul had another purpose in mind, and that was to, to meet Peter, the, the main leader of the church. Paul's point here is that, look, I was only there 15 days. This is not enough time to become somebody's disciple. I didn't learn the gospel from Peter. I already had it. 
uh, and I already knew the gospel, and so I didn't become a disciple of Peter, let alone James. Uh, and, and so he's saying, I w- I'm not their subordinate. I'm their equal. I am an apostle just as they are, although there was some question as to whether James was an apostle too, um, because he didn't believe in Jesus before he died. After he rose again, he became a believer. Um, so he had already received the gospel from God. He didn't receive it from Peter at, on that visit. So what is Paul doing in these verses then? What is the point of these verses? Well, first of all, he is establishing his authority as an apostle in order that he might defend the gospel he preaches. So he's laying the groundwork of defending the gospel by making sure they understand he's a true apostle and he has authority to teach the gospel. One more thing I want to show you, and this should be the next slide. I want to show you the change that took place in in Paul's life and it shows in these verses. Look at the focus here. For you have heard, this is before Christ, for you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many Jews of my own age and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when God, and now he turns and puts all the focus on God and what God has done, his previous life, this is what I did in my own righteousness. But when God, who set me apart from birth and who called me by his grace, was, re- was pleased to reveal his son in me. The difference between the gospel of grace and man-made religion is seen in these verses. Because man-made religion is all about what we do to reach God, what we do to please God. And if I do something on my own, of my own righteousness, who gets the glory for that? I do, but if God does it all, only he deserves the glory for that. And and in the second part of that, it's all about the true good news, which is God has already done everything we need to be saved. So he alone deserves the glory for that. And then finally in in, uh, Galatians 2, verses 1 through 10, he talks about a second trip to Jerusalem. 14 years later, now there's some disagreement. Does that mean 14 years after the first visit, or does that mean 14 years from his conversion? So I'm not good at math. 11 years later. Anyway, uh, after the first visit. We don't know. Doesn't matter. Doesn't change anything. But I just thought I'd let you know that. 14 years later, I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. I took Titus along also. He was Greek. He was a Gentile uh, convert. Uh, I went in response to a revelation and set before them the gospel that I preached among the Gentiles. But I did this privately to those who seemed to be leaders for fear that I was running or had run my race in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. This matter arose because some false brothers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Jesus Christ and to make us slaves. We did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might remain with you. As for those who seemed to be important, the apostles in Jerusalem, whatever they were makes no difference to me. God does not judge by external appearance. Those men added nothing to my message. On the contrary, they saw that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the Gentiles, just as Peter had been to the Jews. For God, who was at work in the ministry of Peter as an apostle to the Jews, was also at work in my ministry as an apostle to the Gentiles. James, Peter, and John, those reputed to be pillars, gave me and Barnabas Barnabas, the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the Jews. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. So 14 years later, Paul returns to Jerusalem. And this is most likely the trip that's recorded in Acts 11. Uh, And on that visit, Paul took a collection uh, from the churches he had visited, a collection of money to give as a gift to the church at Jerusalem that was impoverished. And his purpose, though, that was part of his purpose, but his other purpose was to present his gospel that he was preaching to make sure that they were preaching the same gospel. Uh, And... Uh, to to get their agreement. And the result is that they did agree. The result was that not even Titus was compelled to be circumcised. It's not like they were arguing with each other and Titus went, oh yeah, you guys are right, I should be circumcised. No. Paul presented his gospel and I went, that's it, you got it, buddy. We're preaching the same gospel. They were in agreement. 
And so there was no need for Titus, a Gentile, to be circumcised. Not even that, they gave him the right hand of fellowship. That isn't just a handshake. That's saying, we're going to partner with you in this gospel. We'll go to the Jews, you go to the Gentiles. It's not a different gospel, it's a different focus. We're partnering, partnering with you in this gospel. The only thing they asked is that they remember the poor, continue to remember the poor, which is the reason he was there in the first place. That's the whole reason he went to Jerusalem. Um, and, and he says that these false brothers, these Judaizers, so even before Galatia, these people had an influence, had been spying on their freedom. That's a James Bond word. Okay, They were, they were doing covert operations within the church, spying on the freedom they had in Christ because they wanted to hold the church hostage to the law. And, and their continuing influence is obvious because now here in Galatians, they're still at it. And, the, and the, the, the situation won't be completely settled within the church until the Council of Jerusalem, which is recorded in Acts 15. But the truth is that even though we no longer call them Judaizers, there are still people in the church that are spying on our freedom. Uh, it still happens that people say, oh, no, 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 unless you get this, unless you're dunked in this way in our church. And it, that's a different gospel uh, than the gospel that is preached in the Bible. Uh, and so there are still people who try to add works. Well, let's finish this up as quickly as possible. First of all, what's the big deal? I mean, why is there so much emphasis on circumcision here? Just, you know, what, what does it matter? Paul's going to defend the gospel in detail. And so I just want to briefly say that the good news of Jesus Christ is that justification, being made right with God, or salvation, no matter how you uh, what, no matter what you call it, comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It comes no other way. That is the whole counsel of Scripture from beginning to end. And there is no other gospel than that. In fact, anything else is not good news. It's bad news. Because anything else causes us to have to earn our righteousness, and that's not something we can do. Not only that, when do you know when you've done enough? How do you know if you've done enough? I once taught, when I used to teach world religions at Miller North, a, a Buddhist guy, I don't know what they call him, pastor, it's not a pastor, came in and talked to them. He was the big poobah of Buddhism in the area. I'm not trying to be disrespectful. I just can't remember the name for it. He came in to talk to my kids, and a Christian kid in the class said, after he had talked about this path to perfection, raised his hand and innocently, innocently said, so are you there yet? Are you perfect? And you know what his answer was? No, I'm still trying. And when I really get in trouble, I pray to God. Oh. How do you know when you've done enough? You don't know when you've done enough. It's not good news. It's bad news. And, and we would be in bondage to the law, never knowing if we had done enough, if that was the way to salvation. And we can't do it. Which is why Jesus' last words were, it is finished. And that word for finished means it's completed. There is no work that we can or should add to the gospel. You can't refinish the finished work of Christ. It need not be done, and in truth, it can't be done. Jesus paid it all. So what if Paul had lost then? What if the Jerusalem apostles would have said, mm -mm -mm, we're going to preach a different gospel than that? Well, then the mission of the church could not have been completed. And that's why Paul says, for fear I was running my race in vain. He didn't want the baton of the, of the gospel to be dropped in this because the church would have been divided and there would have been two different gospels. And in fact, the gospel that the, gospel that the Judaizers were preaching would have just made Christianity a sect of Judaism. It wouldn't have been Christianity at all. The church would have been divided. Um, which is why the church today must be vigilant in defending the true gospel. Indeed, it is why Paul was so forceful in defending it in Galatians, so that we will not become slaves again to the law. Two quick quotes from uh, two different theologians. The first, John Stott. He says, The Christian has been set free from the law in the sense that his acceptance before God depends entirely upon, upon God's grace in the death of Christ in Jesus Christ received by faith. To introduce the works of the law and make our acceptance depend on our obedience to rules and regulations was to bring a free man into bondage again. And then 
Dr. or Martin Luther, excuse me, you probably heard of him. Uh, well, he was a doctor too. The issue before us is grave and vital. It involves the death of the Son of God, who by the will and command of the Father became flesh, was crucified, and died for the sins of the world. If faith yields on this point, the death of the Son of God will be in vain, a point that Paul will make in Galatians. Therefore, our stubbornness on this issue is pious and holy, for by it we are striving to preserve the freedom we have in Christ, Christ Jesus, and to keep the truth of the gospel. If we lose this, we lose God, Christ, all the promises, faith, righteousness, and eternal life. Ladies, in Christ, we have been set free from the curse of the law, as Paul calls it. And in this, we should rejoice. And in truth, we must stand, in this, in this truth, we must stand firm and not compromise. We have been set free in order to love, obey, and serve the living God who loved us so much that he gave his only son to die on the cross so that we might be with him forever. Hallelujah. What a savior. And hallelujah, what a great salvation we have in him. Amen? Let's pray. I'm sorry we went long. Father God, thank you so much for your salvation. Thank you so much that in love, you sent your son, and in love, he responded willingly, because otherwise, we would be eternally sunk. Thank you, Jesus. In his name I pray, amen. Sorry to let you out late. We'll try harder with the technology next time. I try to be perfect. We'll try. We'll work on it. It's not going to happen. <laughs> That's good. <laughs>